see a world in a grain of sand and a heaven in a wild flower. Hold infinity in the palm of your hand and eternity in an hour. Hello and welcome to Discovery, the national science radio show where science, arts and culture meet to bang on your eardrums and burn your brain. I'm Angelique Hutchison. On this edition, we'll feature Tim with an expert on the sun's corona and Ian on safe, clean nuclear energy that doesn't go bang. But first up, here's the news with Ian Wolfe. In an exclusive from New Scientist magazine, Joanna Marchant reports that at the heart of all long-term relationships is a fundamental lie, disguised fertility. The traditional biological view is that monogamy evolved to provide resources for offspring. The new report from Stockholm University is that women only stay with men for security and men only stay with women for sex. It's a cynical view of human relationships, but researchers now say it's the driving force behind the evolution of monogamy, and women started it. By offering sex all the time, females and monogamous species disguise whether they're fertile and trick males into sticking around. In most species, females only have sex when they're fertile. This is because sex takes energy and carries the risk of disease, but it also means males can easily tell which females are fertile, so they don't waste time on mates that won't get pregnant. In fact, males in most species usually give females no help in raising their offspring. The male strategy is to stay with the female for as long as she's fertile and then to leave, says zoologist Magnus Einquist of Stockholm University. Some species, including birds, porcupines and humans, the girls have wised up. By cutting down on visual and chemical cues and by having sex all the time, they stop males from telling whether they're fertile. The male has no cue, all he can see is the behaviour of the female. Since males are blind to a female's condition, it's no longer worth their while chasing lots of partners, because the one they're with is just as likely to be fertile as any other one. Normally, a male choosing a stable relationship over a philandering lifestyle will have fewer offspring, putting him at an evolutionary disadvantage. Would women hiding their fertility by offering sex continuously be enough to make it worth his while? Einquist and his colleague Miguel Gironez from Netherlands Institute of Ecology created a mathematical model to test the theory and found that even in a population where males were used to having many partners, if females started to conceal their fertility, the males settled down into long-term partnerships. Animal behaviour expert Mike Sivajothi of Sheffield University says that tricking males into being monogamous isn't the only reason for females' high sex drive. Having lots of sex with lots of different males might ensure that at least some of their offspring were fathered by good quality mates. Although this idea doesn't fit with the traditional view of monogamous societies, Suvajothi points out that even in species where pairs bond for life, the females cheat. When biologists went out and looked at the DNA profiles of birds' offspring, for example, they found that everyone was having a romping time, he said. So long as females can fool males into thinking they're being faithful, their strategy of hidden fertility will still work. Sivajothi says they have to be cryptic because they don't want their partners to find out. This week's New Scientist also reports on the work of German scientists who are developing synthetic fibres that generate electricity when exposed to light. These fibres will be, phony, will be woven into machine washable clothes to make the ultimate in portable solar batteries. A sail made of solar fabric might even be able to provide power for a boat's electronics. 
One of the biggest challenges facing the German team is creating contacts with each strand of a fabric, says Chris Chapman, director of Electro Textiles in Buckinghamshire, a company which specialises in making electronic devices out of cloth. The thing that scuppers most of things with fabrics is getting power in and out of it. This is the same company that last year invented the cloth keyboard. It's a full-size cloth keyboard that would work on any hard surface and can be rolled up or stuffed in a pocket when it's not being used. As far as fashion sense is concerned, solar cloth colour shouldn't be a problem. Although the fibre is transparent, it can be made in different colours by adjusting the thickness of a transparent protective coating. It can be made blue, brown or greenish. So let's hope either blue, brown or green is the new black. Also this year, a new circuit on paper, phone card phone, invented by toy expert Randy Altschul in the USA, goes into production. That's right, it's a cardboard mobile phone that works. And it's so cheap, it's practically disposable. So your cardboard phone could be powered from your solar-powered clothes, and you can write your email on the cloth keyboard you keep rolled up in your sleeve. Even if you think you don't like surprises, your brain does. Scientists from Emory University and Baylor College of Medicine set out to identify the biological reasons why some people enjoy the unexpected. They used a machine to squirt either fruit juice or water into the mouths of test subjects, sometimes predictably, sometimes unpredictably, and recorded the participants' reactions. Meanwhile, functional magnetic resonance imaging recorded what changes happened in the brain's activity. It's always been assumed that the neural reward pathways, which act as high-speed net connections to the pleasure centres of the brain, respond to what people like. Reed Montague of Baylor College found that the subject's brains were much more active when they were exposed to the unexpected than to expected pleasurable effects. This means that the brain finds unexpected pleasures far more rewarding than expected ones, and it may have little to do with what people say they like, but be very sure that the surprise you choose is one that your subject finds pleasurable. Every year, the Royal Institute in London awards one scientist with a prize for the best public lecture on the research they are doing. Back in the 19th century, Michael Faraday gave many popular public lectures on science at the Royal Institute, and the tradition of making contemporary science available to all continues today. For the year 2000, the Best Lecturer Award went to Dr Robert Walsh. Dr Walsh is an expert on the sun's corona and the strange and powerful magnetic forces that affect it. Tim Baines caught up with Dr Walsh while he was touring Australia earlier this year. Dr Walsh, could you take us on a brief journey to the centre of the sun? What is it that makes up our local star? Well, basically our star is over 90% hydrogen. It's a huge big ball of, of gas um, held together under its own gravitational attraction. Um, it's 90% hydrogen, about 9% helium, and then lots of other trace elements, things like oxygen, iron, silicon, aluminium, etc., etc. Um, at the heart of the sun, uh, there is a nuclear furnace. Uh, the a uh, temperature of one or 15 million degrees and a, and a pressure that's about 200 billion times that which you experience here on Earth um, means that the, the hydrogen um, nuclei can be forced together uh, to, to produce nuclear fusion. And that produces a heck of a lot of energy at the heart of the sun. That then leaks outwards uh, uh, across several zones. There's a zone called the radiative zone where the energy is transferred by photons of light. 
then there's a, a zone called the convection zone where just like you heating uh, a soup or a stew on the stove the energy is transferred by bulk motion of the plasma you get these huge big convection cells occurring then lined above the con convection zone there is a thin skin on the sun it's called the photosphere the photosphere is where we get all the visible light and you can actually see the photosphere bubbling away because it's sitting on top of this convection zone and lying above this I suppose solar soup of, of electrified gases uh, there is the corona now the corona is a very interesting and quite a strange place really um, while the surface of the sun this photosphere is at 6000 degrees the corona this outer atmosphere is at an average temperature of 2 million degrees uh, and that really has been something which has uh, been a, a solar mystery a solar x-file as it would be uh, uh, for maybe 50 or 60 years and it's only really now that we're beginning to maybe understand why the sun has this structure and particularly the corona and why it has this sort of temperature difference Okay, so if, if it goes from 6,000 to 2 million degrees, that's quite a step. Uh, why, does, why does this happen? How does this happen? We believe that uh, this uh, strange temperature difference, this strange temperature rise, uh, is really due to the sun's magnetic field. The sun is, is a magnetic star. All the things that we see about the sun, all the, the interesting features that we observe on the sun, is all due to solar magnetism. The sun's magnetic field, uh, we believe, is generated by a dynamo action at the, at the base of this convection zone, of this bubbling uh, bulk motion zone. Uh, and we believe the magnetic field get tw gets twisted around the sun and pops out through the surface of the sun into the corona. Now, if you have a, a magnetic field uh, popping out from the surface of the sun into this hot uh, region, uh, it's coming out from a surface where the magnetic field can be buffeted all the time. It can be wiggled backwards and forwards. And... Uh, that has the possibility of generating magnetic waves which travel out from the surface into the atmosphere. Uh, now, if you go down to Bondi Beach and you watch the surfers down there, you see them riding the waves in, and then the waves crash in upon the beach. Now, waves are great energy carriers. They can carry a heck of a lot of energy over long distances. And uh, we believe this is one, one of the mechanisms for heating the corona. These magnetic waves can carry a lot of energy out from the surface into this atmosphere where they crash into the, uh, the, the corona, dump their energy, and possibly raise the temperature of this medium uh, to, uh, to millions of degrees. That's one method. There's another method which, which also is, is very important. The magne this magnetic field in, in the atmosphere um, can be twisted up like elastic bands. You take an elastic band or a rubber band and you, you twist it up and put a lot of tension into it. Um, there's, a, there's a lot of energy going into that elastic band. We can do exactly the same with the sun's magnetic field. We, with all these buffeting motions and this experiencing, they can get really, really twisted up. Now, if you twist up your elastic band too much, at some point it's going to snap. The tension gets too great. It's the same with the sun's magnetic field. If you twist it up too much, a point is reached where the magnetic field cannot take any more twist, and it breaks. But unlike elastic bands, that once they're broken, there's not much we can do about it, these magnetic fields break and then reconnect again into a simpler magnetic structure. And when they do that, they release a heck of a lot of energy. And we believe this, what is called magnetic reconnection, is another possible way of raising the temperature of the plasma in the corona. Okay, um, now, if I remember my high school physics, when you grab your garden variety bar magnet, it has a north and south magnetic poles. But even if you snap that bar in half, you wouldn't isolate north and south. You actually create two smaller bar magnets, each with a 
north and south magnetic pole. Uh, and one consequence of this is, well, I thought, uh, magnetic field lines only form loops, non-intersecting loops. Uh, so, with all this twisting and reconnection of magnetic field lines, is the Sun creating magnetic monopoles, just north and south poles? Uh, no, it's slightly different than that. The magnetic flux of the Sun is always balanced. It has to balance. There will always be the same amount of north and the same amount of south. But unlike a bar magnet, um, where you have uh, a situation where you have this all contained within a very small region, um, Whenever this magnetic field bursts through the surface of the sun, it can actually spread around an awful lot. It's taken uh, quite far away. So you can have one concentration of magnetic field in a sunspot, for example, um, which will be predominantly one magnetic polarity. But that magnetic field can pop out of the sun and spread around a great distance either side. But it actually goes back down to the sun somewhere else. But the, your south pole, as it were, is spread over a very, very large area. So the sun isn't creating magnetic monopoles. Um, what it's actually doing is taking the magnetic field and unlike a bar magnet where the, your magnet is essentially rigid, um, these magnetic fl uh, flux tubes or magnetic, I suppose just huge magnetic, magnetic pipes can be moved around the sun uh, and therefore the, the, uh, the total amount of magnetic field in the sun uh, at a particular point in time is balanced. There's no magnetic monopoles. We can't create a magnetic monopole. Um, uh, but it, it's, not, it's not like a bar magnet uh, where it, it's all localized into one location. You mentioned the, uh, the sunspots. Now, are th these are related to solar flare ma activity. Is that all magnetic as well? Very much so. Um, sunspots are these visible, visible blemishes on the surface of the sun. And what they are an indicator of is how active our sun is, how magnetically active. Uh, so yes, whenever we have lots and lots of sunspots, we call it solar maximum because of the maximum of sunspots, um, 
that's an indicator when the sun is very, very active and therefore there will be lots of solar flares going off. Solar flares also being a consequence of, uh, of, ma of magnetic reconnection actually, where the magnetic field is very, very twisted up and a huge eruption occurs. If you have a time when you've hardly any sunspots, it's called solar minimum, then the magne magnetic activity of our star is very quiet. There's, there's not very much going on. And the sun actually has a cycle where it goes from, from solar minimum to solar maximum and back to solar minimum again over a period of about 11 years. Even at, at this precise moment in time, we're at a, a period of solar maximum when the sun is very, very active and there's lots of solar flares going off, there are lots of sunspots, there are lots of solar storms occurring. And uh, it's quite a dramatic time. Uh, uh, but it's all, again, just due to the fact that our sun is a magnetic star and all due to the fact that the magnetism is driving everything that we actually see. Okay, what do we... Uh, there's lots of storms on the sun and things. What does that mean for us on Earth? Well, uh, sometimes um, these solar storms, these huge eruptions that come from the, from the surface of the sun are head our way. We've got to remember that actually we are 150 million kilometers from the sun. And the sun is a, is a huge object. Um, I always think about it that whenever I see an image of the sun, whether from some of these observatories or if you're able to um, project the sun onto a, to a piece of card, um, then you can fit 109 Earths across the center of the sun. You can fit 1.3 million Earths inside the volume of the sun. Um, so this sun, this is a huge uh, body in our solar system and it's reasonably far away in, in our terms. Uh, but sometimes the sun erupts and sometimes it actually erupts in our direction. When these solar storms come our way, then that's when we have to be, have to know about what's going on and be concerned about the consequences uh, of it. Um, a solar storm is just a huge, big plasma cloud with its own magnetic field. Uh, Earth has its own magnetic field as well, of course. We have our own, I suppose, in many respects, a solar shield to try and protect us from uh, solar radiation and also from, from these solar storms. But these huge storms can actually impact our Earth and cause our own magnetic uh, field to sort of oscillate, wave backwards and forwards in response to that. And that has a number of, of very dramatic consequences for us. Firstly, uh, you can get increased aurora, these beautiful curtains of light in the sky that uh, uh, we see both in the, in the northern and southern hemisphere. And they're very beautiful, and, and sometimes if a solar storm hits, they can actually extend uh, quite, uh, quite far in, the la in their latitudes. But they also have a number of detrimental effects. Um, you're getting a huge big magnetic storm hitting the Earth and that can short circuit satellites that can affect our radio communication. It's been known to actually um, uh, to uh, knock out transformers, electrical transformers, uh, as well as increase the radiation that the astronauts would experience on the International Space Station. So these solar storms do happen, they hit us and they, they can be quite traumatic uh, and, and the, uh, the effect on the Earth uh, can, can actually be quite detrimental and therefore it's important we understand and know about solar storms. Is it true they, uh, they have a greater effect on the night side of Earth? Um, I wish you hadn't asked me that. <laughs> I, 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 that's something I have to find out about. Um, uh, I understand why you're asking it. Um, he says backpedalling. Um, I would have to find out about that actually because of the fact of the, the way the, the way the, the Earth's magnetic field would be whenever a solar storm actually hits has a, possi has a possibility that the night side, in particular of the, the transformers and things like that, which is what you're talking about, uh, would have a greater effect than on the day side, uh, just naturally because of the, the way the magnetic field would actually be. 
I would have to check that up to see if that's actually the case. I just have this thought that, you know, nature turns the lights out so you can see the aurora better, you know, it's moving. <laughs> well, the aurora actually happens during the day as well, um, but it's just like you just don't actually see it. Um, but enough because the light is, is actually quite faint compared to the, um, uh, the, the, the daylight. But you, of course, you would see it at, at night time because there's no, there's no light at all. So I, I don't know whether that's a conne- where the connection is. The aurora, if you look at it, actually goes in a ring, both on the day side and on the night side. Um, but of course, you would only really see it on the, di- on the night side because of the, the contrast, really. Um, another difficult question. Uh, between about 1650 and 1720, there was a period called the Maunder Minima, uh, where there was not as many spun- sunspots as there normally is. Does anyone know why that occurred or any, any theories about it? Not really, actually. That's one of the solar mysteries is this solar activity cycle and why sometimes the sun is very, very active and has lots and lots of sunspots over a number of maximum and other times where there's hardly any sunspots at all and that has pervaded for a number of cycles. The Monte Minima is quite well... Um, documented. It was a situation that I know from from the UK anyway where the Thames actually froze over and people were actually skating on the Thames and that hasn't happened since. Um, So no, we don't really understand that. I I don't think we have enough information about the cycles of the sun to actually make any proper good and decent predictions about whether the Monday minimum will occur again or whether it was just a once-off effect. Right, so there's a lot of things documenting uh the minimum. What do we have now that looks at the sun? What are the instruments and satellites that we use now to make solar measurements? Um, well, we have a number of dedicated solar satellites which allow us to observe the sun 24 hours a day. Uh, we have the Solar and Heliospheric Observatory, or SOHO. Um, SOHO is an, an ESA, a European Space Agency, a NASA mission. And uh, SOHO is quite unique because SOHO actually sits 1.5 million kilometers sunwards of the Earth. And it rotates around the sun, just as our Earth rotates around the sun, and allows us to observe our star in ways we never thought possible. Uh, I also work with two other missions. I work with a mission that uh, is called Yoko, which is Japanese for sunbeam. Uh, Yoko uh, allows us to observe the sun in, in X-rays, and that's particularly important whenever we're looking at the solar maximum activity because of the sun's uh, gases and the uh, corona uh, can sometimes hit up to temperatures of 7 to 8 million degrees whenever solar flares go off. Uh, I also use another mission uh, called TRACE, the Transition Region and Coronal Explorer, and it allows us to look at the sun in extreme ultraviolet, uh, and it's producing some incredible images and movies which are really blowing away our understanding of the magnetism within the sun's outer atmosphere. Uh, you talk about movies. Where can we have a look at some of these movies? Uh, well, if you, there's a lot of websites now based very much upon these three missions in particular, which allow us to uh, to pick out uh, the highlights of, of, of each of the missions. Um, I can't remember the website addresses off the top of my head, um, but this is it's all on the web. And, uh, and in fact, it's possible now through the Soho mission for you to see what the sun looked like 15 minutes ago. They put, uh, they put on the web uh, the images that they've taken from the sun about 15 or 16 minutes uh, previously. So really we have extreme up-to-date information about our closest star.
That was Tim Baines interviewing Dr. Robert Walsh. And if you want to check out those web pages, then write down these addresses. HTTP blah blah SCI dot ESA dot INT slash SOHO or HTTP blah blah SOHO www dot ESTEC dot ESA dot NL. You're listening to Community Radio's National Science Show. Discovery, brought to you across Australia on the community radio satellite ComradeSat. Up next, Ian Wolfe with Light Fission. This is Michael Archer, director of the Australian Museum, titillated about everything fascinating in the world. And if you want to blow your brain just like I've blown mine, listen to the Discovery Channel. Take two. This is Michael Archer, director of the Australian Museum and fascinated by everything biological and geological in our world. If you want to blow your mind like I blow mine every day in this place, listen to Discover. And... and we've got Ian Wolfe with Light Fission. It's blown out my left and my right. Everybody knows that nuclear power is dirty, but it ain't necessarily so. The main problems with nuclear power are that the fuel is radioactive, so it's a pain to store, transport and mine. Fission uses uranium or plutonium fuel, and fusion uses heavy hydrogen, deuterium from seawater. The ash or waste is radioactive and stays poisonous for thousands of years. This is more of a fission problem, storing it is a problem. The nuclear reactions produce lots of neutrons, which make the shielding and reactor radioactive, to the point that they become radioactive waste themselves. And finally, you can make devastating weapons of mass destruction with the technology. Hardly anyone is aware that in 1932, Nobel Prize winners Cockroft and Walton invented a clean, safe form of nuclear power that suffers none of these problems, light fission. They split a lithium atom with protons to produce two helium atoms with a release of twice as much energy as available from uranium. So light elements that aren't radioactive, like lithium, beryllium and boron, can be used as nuclear fuel. No neutrons are produced at all, just electricity and helium. In 1982, Dr. Bogdan Maglich carried out experiments with a MIGMA light fission reactor, the size of a car tyre, designed to be used in third world countries. It was funded mainly by an Arabian prince. However, in 1991, the funding ran out. No government was interested because no weapons could be produced from the technology. In 1992, in desperation, Dr. Maglick sold the U.S. Air Force on the idea that aircraft fueled by MIGMA light fission reactors could stay in the air for years without refueling. Nothing further has been heard of the project. And that brings us to the end of this edition of Discovery. If you would like to contact us, you can reach us via email at discovery at zip.com.au. That's discovery at zip.com.au. Contributing to the program was Ian Wolfe and Tim Baines. Discovery has been produced by Tim Baines in the studio of 2SER Sydney with technical support from Lachlan Watmore. Aqui e